I sang so loud on It Is Well, I feel like my throat can't recover. Anybody have a lozenge? Not the time. Okay. Hey, there was once a man named Abram. We know him today as Father Abraham. But before he became Father Abraham, he was Abram, the moon god-worshipping pagan from the land of Ur. Here's the thing about Abraham. God loved him. Now, when I say that God loved him, I don't mean that God had a special affection of feeling for him, necessarily. I don't mean that there was something about Abraham that was unique that made God feel some kind of way about him that he didn't feel about other people at that time. When I say that God loved Abraham, what I mean is God chose him. If you don't have a category for love that is synonymous with choosing, let me give you an illustration. Imagine that a married couple goes to an orphanage to adopt a baby. Or a child. It doesn't have to be a baby. When they get to the orphanage, they may look on all the children there and feel some sort of emotional feeling towards them. Generally positive feelings. But they only choose one child. They only adopt one child. That's what I'm talking about. That is the kind of love that God had for Abraham. The love of choosing. Now, obviously, to choose one child is to reject other children. You choose the one, but you can't choose all 50 or 60 or 500 who are at the orphanage. To reject the other children is not to say that you don't like them or that you have some feeling of animosity towards them. It's just you just don't choose them. And that's what today's sermon is all about. The God of the Bible has chosen a people for Himself, Israel. And He has loved this people in a very special way that He has not loved all the peoples of the earth. God says this explicitly throughout the pages of Scripture. Consider just one example. God, speaking through the prophet Amos, says to His people, Israel, You alone have I chosen of all the families or nations of the earth. This act of choosing a man like Abraham or an entire nation like Israel is called love in the Bible. It's called love. The rejection of the other people or the passing over of the other nations, this non-choosing is called hate. In the Bible, we read certain words that have been translated into English, and we have to recognize that they would have struck the original audience in the original context in a different way that they might strike us today. So, the example is love and hate. In today's text, God says, Jacob, I have loved Israel, I have hated. When we think about love, excuse me, Jacob, I loved Esau, I have hated. When we think about love, we tend to think about butterflies in the stomach. We tend to think about strong emotional affection, warm feelings, fondness. And that's partially true. That is part of what love is. But that's not the only way or even the main way that God uses the word love in the Bible. When we think about the word hate, we tend to think about animosity, 
visceral repulsion, just a strong feeling of emotional revulsion, murderous contempt, and that's also accurate. But that's not the only way that the word is used, especially not in the Bible. Consider Jesus' words from Luke 14, 26. Jesus says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, it's clear, I think, that when Jesus says that you have to hate your wife and your children and your parents and even yourself, He doesn't mean that you have to have this really strong, negative, emotional experience towards your wife and kids. What He means is, you need to love Me so much that you're willing to reject everything, even the closest thing, your family, for the sake of following Me. That's the way that the words love and hate are being used in today's sermon, in today's text. So now that we know that, let's read the text together. Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible Word. Amen? If you remember at the end of last week's sermon, I told you that the bulk of the book of Malachi consists of six disputes, six arguments between God and His people. Now, you have to remember that none of these disputes actually took place. Right? It's not like God and Israel were out on the street having an argument with each other on the corner. That's not what happened. All of these dialogues or these disputes, they came through the mouth of the prophet Haggai. We saw that last week. It was the point of the whole sermon. Okay. Imagine a a one-man off-Broadway show where there's one actor on the stage playing two parts. You know, a husband and a wife or an employer and employee. That thing actually, it actually exists. You should go watch it. It'll be a good source of entertainment for you this afternoon. Well, that's kind of what this is like, except for it's not on Broadway. It's Malachi in the streets of Jerusalem acting out both the parts of God and Israel in these disputes. Today, we are going to study the first dispute of the six disputes in this book. Now, in order to do that, we have to go back to Father Abraham, where the sermon began. Now, you may or may not know your Old Testament patriarchs very well. But Isaac, excuse me, Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. For now, we'll just focus on Isaac. Isaac also had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And these are the two sons from today's text, wherein it says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now, another way that you'll remember to think about that phrase is to say, Jacob I chose, 
Esau, I reject it. Why did God choose Jacob and reject Esau? Was it because God saw something particularly special in Jacob that made him more worthy of choosing? Or was it because God saw something particularly defective in Esau, like a flaw in a diamond that made him worthy of rejection? Something like that. Well, that's actually another sermon for another day. But you should know that both Jacob and Esau both produced offspring. And their offspring eventually grew up into nations. The nation of Jacob, excuse me, Jacob eventually grew up into the nation of Israel. Esau eventually grew up into the nation of Edom. The descendants were called Edomites. So as you see God kind of going back and forth between Esau and Edom here, and as you hear me reference Esau and Edom and Edomites, you should just know they're the same thing. Edom, the descendants of Esau. I guess Esau-mites doesn't really work as well. So if you're one... Now, even though God chose Jacob and did not choose Esau... That does not mean that God was necessarily against Esau. As a matter of fact, you can see that God commands the Israelites to be kind to the Edomites. He commands the Israelites to treat them with decency. He's, he's trying to show them that they're not better than the Edomites. That the only reason why they're chosen and the Edomites are not has nothing to do with them. He says, you shall not abhor an Edomite for he is your brother. Now, if you're reading today's text, you may wonder how we got from Deuteronomy to Malachi. Deuteronomy tells Israel, do not abhor the Edomites. Don't treat them poorly. They're your brothers. Here in today's text, we see something almost entirely different. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Laid waste. Left for the jackals. If they build, I'm going to tear it down. I'm going to be angry with these people forever. How do we get from Deuteronomy to Malachi with this tone? Well, you have to remember where we are in the story of the Bible. God's people have returned from exile, and they're back in the land. They've been back in the land for over a hundred years now. But before they went into exile, they were under attack by the nation of Babylon. Israel would have assumed that the Edomites would have been on their side. They would have assumed that Edom would have had their back in this clash. But as it turned out, they didn't. As Babylon's hammer came crashing down on the head of Israel, they looked out to their near neighbors, the Edomites, for help. And Edom had nothing to offer them. Edom sat back with their hands folded. As it turns out, they made a deal with the devil. They made a partnership with Babylon, not to interfere in exchange for peace. Imagine if China and Russia and Pakistan kind of colluded together to come and attack America. And imagine if they were really winning the war and we looked up to Canada for help and said, come on, brother, 
you guys are on our side, right? Let's do this. Help us in the fight. And Canada said, actually, guys, we have a peace treaty with Russia, with China, with Pakistan. We think that they're going to win, so we're just going to stay out of this one. Well, that's what, that's what happened here with the nation of Israel. Not only that, but they bragged. They boasted. As the Edomites were watching Israel crumble, Ezekiel 35 says this. It says that the Edomites rejoiced when the inheritance of Israel became desolate. And it's because of this pride, the pride of Edom, and their partnership with the enemies of God that he said this through his prophet, Obadiah. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. So the reason why God went from like, hey, you're not chosen, but you're not on my, on my you know, like, kill list, to you are my enemy forever, is because they opposed the people of God, especially in their great time of need. When they did that, when they sided with Babylon against Israel, they drew the fiery gaze of God's wrath down on them. Eventually, the people called the Nabataeans came and utterly destroyed the land of Edom. In today's text, although the commentaries aren't exactly sure and some of them contradict each other, it seems like the Edomites are on the verge of rebuilding. Seems like there might be hope that they might not be so conquered and crushed after all. And that's what the text is all about. So now I want to give you four points. Four points from what we've just learned. Point number one. God chooses. God chooses. There is no escaping it. And I hope that as we mature as Christians, we don't want to escape it. Our God is a God who freely and sovereignly chooses some and not others. We see it in the text this morning. But we also see it all throughout the pages of Scripture. Abraham, not Lot. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. Moses, not Pharaoh, the entire nation of Israel and none of the other nations of the earth. Peter, not Judas, the weak and despised things of the world, not the strong, the foolish, not the wise. My hope this morning is not to try to convince anyone here about the doctrine of election. I've, I've taught that class several times over. I've preached that sermon more times than one might expect in my short tenure here at this church. What I want to do this morning is to help connect the reality of God's electing love to your pursuit of joy, to your comfort as a Christian trying to live this life. When we start talking about election, this whole Jacob I loved, Esau I hated thing, we tend to get all hot and bothered. Right? We we start to feel this visceral reaction rise up from within our bowels that says, it's not fair. It's not right. We're not the only ones who have felt this way. This sort of reaction is not a particularly American reaction. It's not a particularly modern or Western reaction. Paul, after he gives one of the strongest lessons on election in the entire Bible, 
he goes on to say, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, is there injustice on God's part? Is that fair of God? A little later in that same section, he's going to say, you're going to say to me, why does he still find fault? You see, Paul knew then what you and I know now. The doctrine of election is difficult for us to stomach because we don't feel like it's fair. Well, if you want to know how Paul answers that objection, I'd encourage you to go home today and read Romans chapter 9, verse 20. But for right now, this morning, what I want you to see is that everywhere that God discusses election, including in today's text, it's meant to serve as an encouragement for His people. It's meant to be a doctrine of comfort for His people. The tragic thing about this doctrine of election is that I can, it can get our blood pressure going through the roof when really it's meant to be a great comfort to our weary souls. Christian, listen to me. God loved you before the foundation of the world. He knew you exactly as you are now, as messed up as you are, as full of sin and blemish as unholy as you are right now, and He even knew you at your worst, if you're not at your worst right now. And He loved you. He chose you. He set His heart upon you. He didn't, he didn't let as messed up as you really are affect Him in His choosing. He wasn't waiting for you to be good enough to choose you. And then He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. He gave the most precious gift that anyone could ever give to you, personally. And then He sent someone as a messenger of salvation to preach the Word of the Gospel to you. And then He gave you the power of the Holy Spirit to regenerate your heart so that your ears would be open to hear the good news so that you wouldn't just reject it in your rebellion. He took off the blinders so that you could see the glory of Jesus Christ for what it really is and not just look at it and reject it outright as we do in our sin. And then when you repented and believed, He sealed you with the promised Holy Spirit. He made sure that you're going to get to heaven. He gave you the Holy Spirit so that you don't shipwreck your own life, so that you don't careen off the road to heaven down into the abyss of hell. And one day, because of God's electing love, you will be enjoying God in heaven forever. Your greatest comfort and hope in this life is not rooted in yourself, but it's rooted in the electing love of God. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you wrestle with feeling loved, feeling loved by people, feeling loved by God, the doctrine of election is meant to be an encouragement for your soul. It's an anchor for your soul. The God of the universe has set His heart on you and made you His own. Listen, the king has come out of the castle. He's gone into the slum villages and He's chosen you. And He's pulled you out of the mud. He's cleaned you up. He's given you a robe that is pure and stainless. And He's taking you back to the castle where you will enjoy Him forever as He rules on His throne. 
This is the doctrine of election. It should not bother us. It should encourage us. It should comfort us. Now, before moving on to the second point, let me tell you why I think Israel was doubting the love of God in the days of Malachi. Right? They were doubting the love of God, but why? Well, I think it has to do with their circumstances. Right? God promised Israel that they would be a great nation. A great nation. And then, you know, they were, they were great for a time. But then they got carried away into exile. The prophets were out there with their Make Israel Great Again hats, calling people to repentance. They repented. God brought them back. When they came back into the land, things went pretty okay. There were some struggles, but it went okay. Now, a hundred years after the temple's built, God's people are sitting there, and they're the size of a postage stamp. They're still under the thumb of Persia. Militarily, economically, they're just, there's nothing happening with them. They're just kind of barely getting by. I think the reason why they doubted God's love is because of their circumstance. And that should make sense to you, right? I mean, isn't that kind of the way that you wrestle with God's love? When everything's going well, when the bills are paid, when you're healthy, when there's no interpersonal conflict, when marriage is going well, when your kids are behaving, you really believe that God loves you. You're like, yes, mm, sweet, the doctrine of God's love. But when you lose your job, when you start fighting with people in the church or in your home, when you're really sick and you can't quite get over it, whatever the case may be, you start to wonder if God loves you. Even if you don't wonder it explicitly. The doctrine of election is something that God has revealed to you so that your trust in His love for you does not depend on your circumstances. The doctrine of election is something that God has revealed to you so that your trust in His love for you can stay strong even when your circumstances are kind of falling apart. The doctrine of God's election is meant to be a ballast in your boat so that when the winds and waves of life's circumstances in a fallen world start crashing down on you and you feel like your faith is about to capsize, it doesn't. Because... God's love for you is rooted in eternity's past. It's rooted in His unchanging nature, His unfailing promises. Not in yourself and not in your circumstances. It is a big, beautiful, biblical truth that we can and must cling to if we're going to make it in this life. So the next time you're suffering or you feel oppressed or you wrestle with discouragement or you get hurt or feel broken or any of the above, and you start to ask God the same thing that the Israelites wanted to ask God, how have you loved us? His answer to you is, I chose you. Point number two, God opposes. I think we've been clear up to this point in the sermon that God sovereignly and freely chooses, but that's not the only truth that the Bible teaches. The Bible also teaches that man is fully responsible. When God punishes Pharaoh, even though God sovereignly moved in Pharaoh's heart, 
God still punishes Pharaoh for his rebellion. So whether God is punishing Pharaoh or the nation of Edom or even you and I, He's punishing us for our rebellion that we are responsible for. Edom's rebellion in this story is that they opposed God's people. And friends, to oppose God's people is to oppose God Himself. Do you remember the story of Paul's conversion? He was persecuting Christians. He was on the road to Damascus. Jesus came, knocked him off his horse, his high horse. And then Jesus said this to him, Saul, because he was Saul then, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Jesus so closely identifies with His people that to attack His people, to persecute His people, is to persecute Him Himself. He Himself. This makes intuitive sense to us, right? Parents, think about if somebody attacks your child, it feels like they're attacking you. Husbands and wives, if somebody attacks your spouse, it feels like they're attacking you. You're ready to go to war for them. Even if you're not married and you're single, you can still understand this. If somebody attacks your parents, it feels like they're attacking you. If somebody attacks your friend who's as close as blood, it feels like they're attacking you. People who are really big into sports, you know, you say something about Alabama and all of a sudden they take their shirt off, they're ready to, ready to fight because you say something about their sports team, you might as well be saying something about them. Whenever somebody attacks someone or something that we love, we take it as a personal attack. And God loves His people. And He takes it personally when people, oppo- when he, when, when people oppose His people. Earlier in the sermon, I talked to you about one aspect of God's love, His choosing. But that's not the only aspect of God's love that's even relevant to this story. There's more to that. If you stop with the illustration of the parents just adopting the child and, and just choosing as a kind of love, you, you don't have a full-orbed vision of what God's love is in the Bible. So let's, let's keep going with that illustration. When the parents arrive there, they may feel a general positive sentiment towards all the children. They pick one child. They probably don't love that child as if it's their very own in that very moment. They tell themselves that they want to and they're going to work towards it. But as time goes on, they develop a love. An affection grows for that adopted child. I mean, it might even happen as they're buckling the child in the car seat as they're planning on driving them home. It might happen in the airport as they're coming back from the Ukraine where maybe they adopted the child. Maybe it takes a week. Maybe it takes a month. I didn't feel anything for patience when she was born. It took me like... Seven weeks, that's too long. (laughs) But even though there may not have been a strong emotive love, that kind of love grows out after the choosing. Now, what I'm not saying here is that this is exactly what God's love is like. Every illustration falls apart at some points. This illustration falls apart at several points. What I just want to communicate to you is that God's love for His people is dynamic. It it begins with choosing, but there's more than that. And friends, God loves His people very much. 
the affection that He has for us, His chosen people, is tremendous. Second only to the affection that the members of the Trinity have for each other that they've had since eternity's past. Another picture of God's love that He has for His people that the Bible gives us is the husband and wife, Jesus and the church. If you haven't been to a wedding of a young couple that's in love, you're really missing out. One of the most beautiful things that you can see is the look in a husband's eyes as he watches his bride walk down the aisle towards him at the altar, right? I mean, it's, it's amazing. I saw it in Will's eyes as Jackie was walking towards him, and I was like really far away, but I could still see it, you know, from a mile away. But this kind of love also necessarily brings with it, friends, a kind of wrath. A kind of wrath. If you want to see what love looks like in action, in wrathful action, you need not look further than what happens when a husband perceives that his wife is in danger. I remember a time in Peru where I was sitting at the table reading and I heard my wife outside scream my name in what seemed like bloody murder. I didn't even have time to process it. I just jumped up and ran outside ready to attack and maim and kill anyone or anything that was threatening my bride. As it turns out, somebody was just trying to rip her off, so I didn't have to do any of that. But the point is, because I love my bride so much, when I thought she was in danger from someone, I was willing to pour out my wrath on that person. Well, imagine that times a billion. And now you might be able to see what the wrath of God will look like against those who oppose His bride. Against the enemies of God's people. He decimates their heritage. He leaves their cities in ruin. He leaves their flesh for the jackals. His anger burns against these people forever. Consider the danger of opposing God's people. To oppose God's people is to oppose God Himself. It's to make yourself an enemy of God. And you know, the Bible says that we were all at one point enemies of God. We read it today in our assurance of pardon. Romans 5.10 says that Jesus saved us, quote, while we were yet enemies of God, end quote. The bad news part of the good news of the gospel is that every Christian in this room was once hostile towards God, at war with God, enemies of God. Because of our hard hearts, we rebelled against the God who made us. And because of our rebellion, we were on a collision course with God's wrath. Were it not for the loving kindness of God, we would have all suffered the same fate as the Edomites in today's text. The Lord would have been angry with us forever. But Jesus Christ came. And He was at peace with God. Every aspect of His life was fully in sync with God and with God's will. Rather than opposing God, He walked with God. Rather than attacking God as an enemy, He walked with God as a friend and as a son. And He lived a perfect life. And then He died on the cross so that we might be counted as friends of God. 
sons of God. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you should know that you are still an enemy of God. I cannot imagine a more terrifying place to be than on the opposite sides of the battle lines drawn for all of eternity between the powers of darkness and the light of God. I want to encourage you to choose, even today, to put down your arms, to stop opposing God, to stop opposing His people, and to turn to Him in faith. Now that's, that's kind of the scary part of this, but there's also, believe it or not, a comforting aspect of this reality, that God goes to war against the enemies of His people. And the comfort is for us. It's for us, His people. You see, Jesus told us that we're like sheep in the midst of wolves. As Christians living in a fallen world, we are going to have enemies. They hated our master. How do you think they're going to feel about us? And if you don't have any enemies, I'm concerned for your faith. But the reality is is that for righteousness' sake, we will have enemies. And we don't have to fight those enemies ourselves. God will fight every enemy of righteousness for us. He will oppose everyone who opposes us. So as you consider atheists like North Korea or activists outside of abortion clinics cursing the name of Jesus or atheists like Richard Dawkins or the more popular, less angry Neil deGrasse Tyson or false teachers like Joel Osteen or any other people of any other enemy of the people of God that you can imagine, you should remember that they are not just warring with you. They're warring against God. Did you know that God opposed His people at one point in time? God opposed His people Israel in the same way that He opposed Edom at one point in time. God sent a word of prophecy 200 years before these events against Jerusalem. This is what he said. He said, I will make, now listen to the similarity of language. I will make Jerusalem, not Edom, Jerusalem, my people, a heap of ruins, a layer of jackals. And I will make the city of Judah a desolation without inhabitants. And here's one of the main differences between Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom. Both suffered destruction under the hand of God. But for God's chosen people, that hand of destruction was the hand of discipline. The destruction brought about redemption. But for Edom, the destruction was final. The same is true for us as Christians, brothers and sisters. We may experience fire. In this life, but that fire is given to us by God as an agent to cleanse us, to purify our souls. But for the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people, that fire is not redemptive in any sense. It merely serves to punish. You see this finality in even the names that the Lord gives the land where the two nations lived. In Zechariah 2.2, the Lord calls the nation of Israel, the land of Israel, the Holy Land. In today's text, God calls the land of Edom the wicked country. 
holy land, wicked country. Zechariah 5, 5-11 talks about Israel being cleansed by the wrath of God. It's a cleansing act. But today's text talks about the Edomites as the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. There's no cleansing. You remember in your New Testaments, Peter and Judas? Both of them turned against God. Both of them were disciplined by God. But for one, their suffering was the suffering of a son. The other was lost forever. Point number three, God is sovereign. At this point in the story of salvation, the nation of Israel has been in a lot of wars. It's fought a lot of battles. Really, ever since their inception, ever since God sent them into the promised land, they fought the Canaanites there. They've been fighting ever since. And they won a great many battles and wars. But as their rebellion grows, their losses begin to come faster, hotter, heavier. Assyria obliterated them. Babylon soon after. But here, in the rebuilt but very tiny Jerusalem, God's people probably felt very helpless. You know, what if the Edomites decide to come after us again? And what if, what if this person attacks? Or what if that person attacks? But in verse 4, the Lord gives the Israelites a word of encouragement. Listen to what he says. He says, If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says... They may build, but I will tear down. God calls himself the Lord of hosts. Now, I imagine you probably don't know what that means. It doesn't mean he has a lot of dinner parties. Host is a word for army, particularly the armies of the nations. Okay, and here God is calling himself the Lord over all these armies. He's telling the postage stamp sized Judah, who has no kind of military presence whatsoever, don't worry about your army. I'm the Lord of the armies. I'm the Lord over Persia's army. I'm the Lord over the Edomites or anybody else who might come and attack you. I am the Lord of hosts. Although Israel may not have any kind of meaningful military, they do have God. And they have a God who is himself a mighty warrior. If he is the Lord of the armies, he's also the general, the first warrior out on the battle line. The one leading the charge. Exodus 15, the Lord describing Himself. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. Isaiah 42, the Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse His zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, He will raise a war cry. He will prevail against His enemies. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. Brothers and sisters, you should trust that the God who made you and the God who chose you, the God who loves you, is a God who is fighting for you, like a husband would fight for his bride. When the armies of Syria surrounded the prophet Elisha, and he was, he just felt hopeless militarily, the Lord opened his eyes. 
And when he did, he looked around and he saw all the heavenly, all the heavenly hosts. He saw the armies of God around him that he did not know were around him. Well, brothers and sisters, the Lord is doing the same thing for you this morning through his word. He's opening your eyes. He's trying to let you know that he is mighty and powerful. He is the Lord of all of the armies. And he is warring against any and every power or principality that is warring against you. Point number four. Very short point. God's Word has many purposes. Right? It can be used for a lot of things. It can be used to build us up as His people. It can be used to teach us how to live. It can be used to comfort us in our suffering. But ultimately, everything that we learn in God's Word, especially here today, is meant to lead us towards one end. The most important thing of all, it should lead us to praise God and to glorify Him. Look at verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. When it says your own eyes shall see this, I'm not exactly sure what that means. I think what it means is that the Edomites are on the verge of rebuilding, and God is... Uh, the Israelites are nervous about that and they're probably frustrated by it. And the Lord is saying, no, I'm going to crush them. I'm going to lay everything to waste again and you're going to see it when I do it. But notice that God's promise of retribution is meant to lead His people to praise His name. God tells His people that the end result of His love, the end result of His sovereignty, the end result of His wrath is the praise of His great name. But rather than saying anything else about that, I'm just going to pray, and we are going to respond by continuing to praise in song. Father, we, we do praise your name. Your name is high and exalted above all the names of the earth. You are a holy and righteous and good and powerful God, and your love for us knows no bounds. We praise you for saving us, and we ask that you would continue to love us even today. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Please stand with me.